The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox Podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Madison's Federalist 10 makes an unusual case. He argued the size and diversity of the United States is a critical safeguard against the dominance of any single faction. Of course, it is well known how the Founding Fathers were wary of all factions, all political parties, and most of all, the tyranny of the majority. Indeed, the American Constitution is even described as counter-majoritarian because multiple avenues exist for entrenched minorities to prevail in the legislative process. But Madison was different. While he is credited as the father of the Constitution, he was among the most majoritarian of all the founding fathers. Still, Madison was wary of strong, overwhelming majorities. He saw regional diversity as a check against majoritarianism. The size and diversity of the new nation meant any meaningful majority would be the result of significant compromise and, hopefully, deliberation. Unfortunately, the two-party system, as it exists today, has undermined the Madisonian vision in Federalist 10. The two political parties fight for overwhelming majorities, but the inability of either party to prevail causes gridlock rather than compromise. Necessary reforms are either stalled or delayed as they become rallying cries in a never-ending campaign cycle. This was never Madison's intention. Lee Drutman offers a solution to transform American democracy. His book, Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop, The Case for Multi-Party Democracy in America, argues for proportional representation of the legislature and ranked choice voting for the presidency. But his intention is not about any one reform. His goal is to produce a multi-party democracy where no single party commands an absolute majority. You might recognize Lee Drutman. His articles have appeared in the New York Times, Vox, and 538. He is also a senior fellow in the political reform program at New America and a co-host of the podcast Politics in Question alongside Julia Zari and James Walner. The idea of multi-party democracy in America can sound radical, but like most reformers, Drutman is a traditionalist at heart. He finds his inspiration in Madison's vision of the American political system. Rather than designing something novel, Lee believes his reforms bring America closer to the original aims of the Founding Fathers. The United States has grown in its size and its diversity, but its politics have been reduced to a single dimension 
fought over by two political parties. Ultimately, Lee believes a more diverse party system is necessary to represent a diverse population. It's a Madisonian case for the challenges of polarization and partisanship as they exist today. So, before we conclude 2020, I wanted to introduce an author of one of the most influential books on democracy of the year. So, with no time left this year, here we go. This is my conversation with Lee Drutman. Lee Drutman, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. I am delighted to be talking democracy with you, Justin. Well, Lee, your book is among the most important about democracy this year. So I apologize for not reaching out earlier, but I do think that this is going to be a perfect way to kind of conclude for uh, 2020. So really excited to be talking to you about your book. It's It came out early this year, but it's, it's like I said, it's one of the best uh, on democracy for the year. Well, it's been a lot of great books on democracy this year. So that's, that's a real compliment. I want to take a second and emphasize really how well-written your book is, though. Not just the ideas. You're truly a good writer. Uh, there are some quotable lines. Uh, here's an example. Compromise collapses the distinctions between parties. Competition demands a distinction between parties. It's only in a two-party system where finding the balance between too much and too little division is impossible. So I, I thought that was brilliantly right. put together. Well, highly quotable. Well, I, 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 <laughs> I, 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 I spend a lot of time uh, editing and re-editing. Uh, I'm one of those writers who believes that all writing is rewriting and you know, take well, like 20 or 30 drafts and eventually you get something pretty good. Now, to, to kind of bring us into the concept of the book, your book explores a lot of reforms, but the real intention is based on the quote, it's to move towards a multi-party democracy. Can you explain a little bit about why a multi-party democracy is superior to a two-party system? Well, I mean, the basic distinction between a multi-party democracy and, and a two-party system in some ways is... is very simple. It's, it's a question of whether the coalitions be, form before the election or, or form after the election. And in a two-party system, voters are asked to choose one of two parties. And the idea is that you know, the party that they choose should be able to govern. It's, a, it's a basically a majoritarian idea and you know, then should be held accountable on that. Now, the theory behind a multi-party democracy is that voters should have more choices and vote for more parties. And then the parties, based on uh, their vote share in the election, should figure out how to work together to govern. Now, uh, there's another feature of multi-party democracies, or rather it's a corollary is that in order to get a multi-party democracy, you need a proportional voting system. And that means typically uh, large multi-member districts with some sort of proportional allocation formula. And what that means is that every vote counts equally and every electoral district is competitive. In order to get a two-party system, you need essentially a, a first-past-the-post plurality system, which requires single member districts. So what you wind up 
having are a lot of districts that are just not particularly competitive, a lot of voters who feel like their votes don't matter, a lot of lopsided districts and a handful of, of swing districts. So so I think that's one clear benefit of a proportional multi-party system is just you know, more voters matter. Then there's the question of whether you know, voters should choose between two parties or choose between more parties. Now, there's a couple of longstanding arguments for a two-party system. One of the arguments was that it produces moderation because the parties are supposed to converge on the median voter. Now, that was a theory that was published in 19, or popularized really in 1957 by Anthony Downs and is probably one of the most widely cited works in the social sciences. And it's wrong. It seemed to describe the reality of American politics in the 1950s. But if you actually pick it apart, you find that uh, it it relies on a bunch of unrealistic assumptions. And to give Downs credit, it was more of a thought experiment than it was an explanatory theory. In fact, if you read his book, which few people actually do, you will find that on the uh, at, uh, on the following page, uh, so on one page, he describes a, a sort of voting electorate that forms a bell curve of ideology in which the uh, voting opinion is masked in the middle. And says, well, in that situation, you'll have convergence on the middle. But in the very next page, he says, well, but there's, you know, you could conceive of an alternate distribution that's bimodal in which there's not many voters in the center and the the public opinion is more pulled in in two directions. And in that case, he writes very clearly that a two-party system will collapse. That is actually quite prophetic. So, you know, there's no guarantee that that a two-party system will converge on the median voter. It was just that there were certain characteristics of American politics in the 1950s, essentially parties that themselves were these sort of broad overlapping and incoherent coalitions. There was probably more of a four-party system within the two-party system that created the sort of top-level effect of moderation. Now, the other premise of of a more majoritarian two-party system is the idea of accountability that you elect a party, you know, you put in power, you can judge the results. Now, Two problems with that. One problem is that it just doesn't work in the U.S. system because we have a separate House, Senate, presidential elections. So it's it's not like, you know, voters are, are necessarily giving one party a clear majority. Often we have divided government, even with unified government and the senators, House members and president are elected on uh, different terms at different times with different electorates. You know, so you know, at some level, it, it just doesn't fit the U.S. institutional structure. It, you know, if, if we were the United Kingdom and, and had a, a Westminster style system in which the, the prime minister was also head of parliament, the parties were much more unified because parties determine who gets to run in the districts and, and the, there's no separate president, you know, then you could argue that it makes sense. Although even in the UK, uh, it doesn't necessarily always operate that way. Sure. Francis McCullough Rosenbluth and uh, Ian Shapiro even wrote a book recently about uh, called Responsible Parties back in 2018, literally about that, about how the UK system no longer reflects a Westminster system. And I think Lawrence Whitehead wrote a piece not too, not too long ago in the Taiwan Journal of Democracy, where he called it Westminster model or model, where he talked about how the Westminster system no longer even reflects Great Britain. And to be honest, that, that makes a lot of sense because Great Britain now has 
probably about five active parties within their political system in different ways. And plus the, they almost have a primary system to elect the prime minister, which has caused problems. And that comes back to what Rosenbluth and uh, Shapiro talk about in responsible parties. They want to strengthen the parties. So you're right. There's issues with the Westminster system in what used to be Westminster. Yeah. And the United Kingdom uh, is one of the few democracies that still uses uh, first past the post elections. And that leads to parties governing typically with only a minority of votes. And the UK system has sort of been a two party system on and off. But the, the fact that there's, you know, really probably more like a five party system means that, that the UK would be much better with something more proportional. Um, and there, there's been a much more active movement for proportional representation in the UK than there has been historically in the US. You can argue that the reason that the UK wound up with Brexit is because the margin threat that UKIP posed to the Conservative Party, and they tried to neutralize that by elevating the Brexit referendum, it kind of backfired, but that margin threat wouldn't have existed. I mean, UKIP would be, as are most far-right parties in Europe, probably a 10, 15% party. They could you know, be kept out of government pretty pretty safely. I mean, you could have had a centrist coalition as you do in most of the European democracies. And and this is this takes us to another reason why a proportional system is better, because if you have a, a far-right extremist proto-fascist party, that's 10 or 15%, which seems to be about 15%, seems, well, maybe 20% in a few countries, but of, of comparable demographic, economic, urban, rural balance to the US, is that, you know, it, that, that party can be safely kept out of government. But with the two-party system, you have the plurality problem. It's really exemplified by how Donald Trump took over the Republican Party is that Donald Trump was not the chosen candidate of a majority of Republicans. He was the chosen candidate of a plurality of Republicans. But by being a well-placed plurality of a plurality, you know, Trump became president, took over the entire Republican Party, and there was nowhere else for dissenting Republicans to go. And so they eventually had to either quit the party or get on board with his vision for it. So your book is called Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop. And I see two elements within your book. One is you fundamentally believe that a multi-party democratic system is superior to a two-party system. But there's a second element. Yeah. And there's a second element where you see the polarization within the country exacerbating those problems and creating what you describe as the two-party doom loop. Can you explain what a two-party doom loop is, maybe even what a doom loop is? Well, a a doom loop is just a terrifying name for a, a reinforcing positive feedback system. So, you know, if you've ever put a speaker up in front of a microphone and you know how a little bit of a whisper can get uh, amplified and amplified until it becomes a deafening noise, of course, the, the solution there is that you just turn off your speaker or you unplug your microphone. So that's that's a, an easy doom loop to avoid. But, you know, it, it's a lot harder to do that in a democracy. And you know, the idea is that things continue to escalate. And the way in which hyperpartisanship gets worse and worse, 
as demonization gets worse and worse, as the stakes get worse and worse, as, as you know, hardball tactics get worse and worse, is it continues to justify more and more extreme and more and more hyperpartisan and more and more hardball tactics until you wind up at a point where the, the whole process itself has been delegitimized and the only option is violence. And I fear that we are getting increasingly close to that dangerous cliff's edge. And once you fall off it, it, it's very hard to climb back up. Economics could work like a doom loop where a recession continues to get worse in people's minds, at least. But there is a moment of recalibration where things start to get better again. Uh, I think of Joseph Schumpeter, who in his idea of economics talked about creative destruction, where one system is destroyed, something else emerges. Why is it that the that in your mind, the parties are creating a doom loop where there's no moment of recalibration, where the parties will strengthen and reemerge a new new democratic norms that become stronger than before? Um, I, I mean, I, I don't want to say never. I mean, it, it, it could happen. You know, but it, you know, if we if we take a Schumpeterian view of creative destruction, it suggests that the old firms need to die and new firms need to reemerge. So it, you know, it's not the Republican Party or the Democratic Party; it's new parties that reflect new coalitions. And you know, American politics has you know historically gone through partisan realignments at moments in which you know politics felt unsustainable under the current coalitions, and parties have broken apart and realigned. And there was a period a few years ago when I thought that we really were on the verge of a re- of a realignment. But the thing that makes a realignment really hard is that the, this sense of negative partisanship is really doing a lot of work in holding together what should otherwise be fractured party coalitions. And, you know, if you think about the history of political realignments, usually before there's a there's a there's a realignment, there's a, a, a strong emergence of a of a minor party or a, or a new party that really elevates some new issue that neither of the two parties are, are tackling and, and leads the, the path forward to a new political alignment. And you know, I, I don't see that happening. I think you know, it's precisely the, the hyper partisanship that makes it really hard for third parties to emerge because nobody wants to waste their vote and potentially elect a, a party that you know, is seen as a as an existential threat to the fate of the the country and you know that's the moment that we're in and that's the force that's keeping the parties together and the parties have every incentive to elevate that every election that if you if you don't elect our party you're you know you're you're going to cause the downfall of democracy or the end of america and you know until that stops it's unlikely. I mean, you, you could imagine that if, if one party just kind of had a, an overwhelming victory, that things would change. But the elections have been so closely fought for almost 30 years or really three decades now. And, you know, there's always this promise of some sort of emerging majority. But yet every election seems to be up for grabs. And it's not clear how that's going to resolve anytime soon, given the stickiness of partisan voting patterns. So your book touches on on the differences within the political environments between, let's say, the 1950s and today. 
And you described the 50s very much, maybe more the 60s, very much as a period of bipartisanship. Why has bipartisanship disappeared? I mean, bipartisanship emerged uh, in, a, in a particular era because the parties were these sort of broad overlapping coalitions. I mean, bipartisanship has waxed and waned throughout the history of our of our party system. You know, we, we had we've had eras of high partisanship before when the you know, parties were much more disciplined and centrally organized. In an earlier era, we had liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats. We had something much more like a four party system. And that created genuine points of overlap. There were a lot of split ticket voters the, the parties themselves didn't have such clear national identities. They were just these sort of like really loose labels and with lots of overlapping factions. And, you know, un- under those conditions, coalitions work if you know there's not strong uh, nationalized centralized parties you know and and a kind of committee based congress a, a sense that that every election is not an election uh, for the fate of the nation in which if the other party wins it will be death to america and there was a long period of time in which it was clear that the democrats were going to control congress and so it didn't feel like the draw of Congress was up for every election. There was a long period in which it seemed like Americans really wanted divided government because they kept electing Republican presidents and Democratic Congresses. And then starting in the 90s, there was a period in which every election felt like it was up for grabs, in which the parties became much more nationalized, fundraising became much more centralized, messaging became much more centralized, cultural issues became much higher stakes. And the parties really sorted into two very distinct geographical coalitions, one uh, representing rural, exurban, traditionalist, culturally conservative parts of the country, and one representing professional, suburban, particularly urban parts, cosmopolitan parts of America with really two conflicting visions of American identity that became really reified as the parties fought on these lines, right? I mean, and, and, and you know, I, I think it's important to recognize that, that in some ways that traditionalist Christian conservative versus like globalist cosmopolitan is, is a stereotype. And I think a lot of people in both camps would say, well, you know, I, I think that unfairly represents me, but that is the dividing line of politics. And that is how elections are framed by both parties. And so it, it kind of reifies that distinction and creates this us versus them mentality uh, with all these stacking identities that raise the stakes and it creates tremendous pressure on partisans on both sides to, to constantly stay on the attack and to the point where compromise itself becomes irrational or at least dangerous because you have party leaders who are going to punish you for muddling the message and you face primary voters who are going to attack you for not being partisan enough. It's interesting because I think I have a, a different reading of the same historical period but I think it actually helps strengthen. All right. Well, what's, what's your reading? Uh, when Eisenhower was elected, there was a big push to roll back the New Deal, have the Republicans in power and actually roll it back. And Eisenhower made a decision not to roll back some of those programs. And Johnson, on the other hand, coming from like Robert Caro's book, Master of the Senate, he describes how Johnson made a political decision 
to work with Eisenhower, even though he was leading the Democrats in the Senate and to create an alliance with Eisenhower, beginning with foreign policy, because the Republicans were actually hostile uh, to the agreements at Yalta. And again, wanted, wanted to roll back the Yalta agreements that were established. And Eisenhower was more favorable to the past foreign policy agreements with Truman. My point is, is that you had these leaders make decisions that they thought that it was more important to establish compromise or to not move to those extremes, that they were, they were elite driven decisions that were made. On the other hand, when you get to McConnell, he makes a political decision to undermine Obama at every opportunity and try to create a failed presidency, literally the exact opposite, because Johnson felt if they can work with Eisenhower, that it would help lift up the Democrats in Congress. By the time you get to McConnell, he thought that if you could undermine Obama, it would actually lift up the Republicans in Congress. And my point is, is that if Eisenhower and, and LBJ had looked at the political environment differently than what they did and approached things differently, you probably would have saw a doom loop much earlier than, than we do today. You would have saw uh, significant polarization. You would have saw some of those same problems. So some of the compromise that we see throughout history is oftentimes so focused on elites rather than being focused on the political structure that's laid out before people. And that can be a concern. Like you said in your book, at its core, my argument can be stilled into two words institutions matter. And if you don't have the right institutions in place, I, I can see how everything breaks down the moment that the leaders don't, don't see a reason to make things work. Uh, yeah, I want to, I want to hang on this point about LBJ and, and, and Eisenhower and, you know, think about them versus, you know, McConnell and, and Obama. I mean, so a few, a few points about Eisenhower in that he, he he represented the liberal wing of the Republican Party, and you know the Republican Party had, had nominated liberal candidates in '48. Thomas Dewey was was a liberal. I mean, Wendell Wilkie was probably you'd classify him as as a liberal. And you know there was a time in which you know I think I think FDR said you know maybe Wendell Wilkie and I should actually be in the same party because we're both fighting against the conservatives in our own party. And, you know, similarly, LBJ, you know, comes from Texas, it's a pretty conservative state. You know, he, he comes up working with Southern Democrats who are pretty conservative. So, you know, he, he represents you know, a much more conservative Democratic Party. Eisenhower represents a much more liberal Republican Party. If you follow the career of uh, Mitch McConnell, right? McConnell comes up in the 70s and he comes up as a liberal Republican. I mean, he's pro-civil rights, pro-campaign finance reform. He, he's even pro-choice, I think, at, at the start. And McConnell just moves with the times, right? McConnell represents where his coalition is. That's his success is, is he doesn't have fixed principles other than helping Republicans win. So he's really just reflecting where his party is in the way that you know, leads him to certain conclusions about what the best strategy is. Yeah, I mean, the expectations of the voters are different too. Voters want Republicans to fight. 
So, yeah, uh, yeah, elite decisions matter, but I mean, it's really hard to understand elite decisions without understanding the environment that, you know, I mean, certain elites emerge in particular moments in response to the to the times and and the opportunities that present themselves. If you took the same Mitch McConnell and and he came up in the Republican Party in the 40s, he would be a very different person. Well, there's two ways to read the role of the great person narrative in history. One is you can say everything depends on the political leaders. The other way to read it is a single person just delays the inevitable and people can hold back the tide of history, but eventually things end up in the same place based on your institutions, based on the culture, based on based on things that really push the tide of history rather than the singular events of history. You know, I don't want to say it's entirely structure. People matter, but actors are, are operating in a particular environment. I mean, was Donald Trump a consequential president? Absolutely. Did Donald Trump emerge out of the Republican primary in 2016 uh, based on particular factors that were ripe in 2016? Absolutely. Was he shaped by those factors? Absolutely. Was Newt Gingrich a consequential speaker? Absolutely. Were there important structural reasons and pressures that created the the rise of the, the Gingrich speakership? Absolutely. So Lee, you gave a interesting description of McConnell where McConnell is, has changed and it follows a narrative of polarization within our country where the Republican Party has broken down and the Democrats have broken down from having two different wings like you described. You describe it as a four-party system in your book, even though that there are fundamentally two different parties, conservative Democrats and liberal Democrats, conservative Republicans and liberal Republicans. Today, polarization has has established a, a, a good sense of what it means to be Republican, what it means to be Democrat. Has, has this same polarization, though, removed the ideological space for multiple parties, even if we establish the conditions to allow multiple parties to, to proliferate through like proportional representation or something like that? Not at all. One is that ideology is, is much weaker than partisanship in that, you know, people's ideologies are actually quite flexible and they are constantly updating them in response to uh, elite cues. You look at how public opinion has shifted on, on a large number of issues over the last decade, even though partisanship has been remarkably stable. And that's, you know, that's, that's been a longstanding finding in political science, opinion research going back many, many, many decades. Second point is that I, I, I actually don't think that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party are all that distinct ideologically on a lot of issues. On sort of social, cultural issues and identity issues, I think there's a big distinction. But like on a lot of policy issues, honestly, I, I think there, there's plenty of space for compromise if they wanted. And, you know, comparatively, if you look at 
at the extent to which parties in, in many advanced democracies are ideologically polarized. The, the Democratic Party and the Republican Party don't actually look that far apart. You know, where they are far apart is, you know, again, on these these kind of real touchstone identity issues, which are elevated by this binary urban versus rural divide and really reified as, as the essence of voting. Also, there's polarization it is particularly high in Congress because so much is controlled by leadership so that the parties are prevented uh, or the leadership basically keeps the, the issues that would divide the parties internally. But, you know, I mean, if you look at the Democratic primary, I mean, I think there's there's a there's really a, a lot of disagreement within the party uh, that is swept aside when parties in government uh, in the Republican Party. I think there's tremendous disagreement. You know, I, I think there's certainly space for five or six parties. You know, if you look at public opinion data, you know, it's much more heterogeneous than the two parties would like you to believe it's kind of all over the place. And there are a lot of cross-pressured voters that are, you know, socially conservative, but economically liberal. There's fewer voters who are, but some who are, you know, uh, fiscally conservative, but socially liberal. They, they tend to be much more overrepresented in, in elite opinion organizations, but much less in the electorate. But I mean, point is that voters follow elite cues. And, and if there were an opening for more parties, I think you would see more parties offering different ideological and issue position bundles and, and voters following them, because that's what has historically happened. I mean, there's some small percentage of, of voters particularly actively engaged who have strong ideologies, but, you know, most people are, are partisans. And if you offer different partisan identities, they will take them. Well, that comes back to Ezra Klein's book, where he describes polarization and the sense of partisan identity as being something that you identify yourself as rather than just something that you believe in. Like you, you follow those partisan cues uh, to, to kind of establish your political ideology. And I agree with you entirely. There's a lot more space for different ideas within the political parties. I keep hearing how, the Democrats are pushing farther and farther to the left. But then when they had the chance to nominate a presidential candidate, the last two elections, they've nominated Joe Biden, who was the most most moderate of all the candidates. Hillary Clinton was, was significantly more moderate than Bernie Sanders. Even Barack Obama, at least today, is looked on as, as a relatively moderate candidate. And even in the Republican Party, while we look at Donald Trump as being an extremist because of how he stands on the cultural divide, I remember in 2016, most Republicans were saying he wasn't conservative enough because he was so moderate on the economic divide. So I, I can see your point that there is a lot of space within the parties and there's a lot of debate within the parties as, as to what to accomplish. But at the same time, new political parties wouldn't emerge fully formed overnight. It, it would take some time. I, I, I notice around the world where you have multi-party systems, there's sometimes instability within that party system. Like Latin America has had issues with stabilizing their party system. Oftentimes they're vehicles just for, for specific candidacies even France has seen traditional party struggle within recent years. You had Macron uh, establish a new party to be elected within, within France. 
what would the challenges be for the institutionalization of new political parties if we established a multi-party system? Well, the, the challenge is, you know, building building identities. You know, there, there's a there's a balance here between stability and fluidity, right? Too much stability is rigidity. Too much rigidity. I mean, I guess a system that doesn't change at all is a system that's dead, right? So, I mean, there needs to be some some change. And, you know, look, you can look at the, the parties. I mean, look at France, right? You know, I mean, the, the traditional, you know, France for a while was kind of a two-party-ish system. But, you know, the, the center-left and the center-right party, you know, kind of went through a series of crises. And, you know, I don't, I don't know what will happen with M- Macron's on Marsh party, but... You know, I mean, it, it represents the the ability of of the political system to put together new coalitions and new parties when you know the old parties don't make sense anymore, and that that's you know a, a fundamental uh, aspect of democracy. That the system should be responsive. It's very hard for the Democratic Party and the Republican Party to change because they represent these sort of long held negotiations among a lot of different interests and you know they have a strong interest in keeping that coalition together i mean i i don't want us to become brazil with like 30 parties and tremendous instability but you know here here's where institutional design actually matters is that it, uh, proportional representation is not one thing uh there are many many forms of proportional representation and the reforms that I support in the book and you know are, are very you know modest you know relatively small district size they wouldn't give us you know 15 or 30 parties you know they're actually uh, carefully designed to probably give us between four and six parties which and with, with a reasonable threshold so that like it's just new parties are not just going to constantly come and go because of low thresholds I mean that's the problem in a lot of Latin American countries is as well as Israel and some other countries is a, a form of hyper proportional representation where it's just too easy for parties to to form uh, with just a very small percentage of, of support. And, you know, again, to, to a previous point, you know, I mean, I think there are parties within parties right now. There's a kind of Bernie Sanders Social Democratic Party within the Democratic Party that I think had, if they had the opportunity to run separately, they would have the list, they would have the infrastructure, you know, within the Republican Party, you know, well, there's there's a Libertarian Party that already exists. There's a sort of Lincoln Project, Never Trump Republican Party that, that basically exists. And there is probably some sort of yeah, you know, probably, probably maybe one or two other parties that, that exist. So, Lee, uh, multi-party systems around the world can struggle to form coalitions. There's, there is a cost to joining a coalition as opposed to being in the opposition. And they frequently fall apart around the world. Not too long ago, Salvini pulled out of, out of his coalition with the uh, Five Star Movement over in Italy and brought about new elections could a multi-party system exacerbate political conflict in the United States if these different parties aren't willing to to compromise and work together? Um, there's a few ways to 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 think about this. Um, I, I mean, one, it's exactly right that parties do sometimes struggle to form coalitions, and that that's a reality of politics. That politics is about compromise. I mean, 
it's it's always hard to build coalitions to to get legislation, whether or not you know even when Democrats or Republicans have a majority, they struggle to build coalitions to govern within their party and sometimes across their parties. So I mean th- that's just uh, the reality in both two party and multi-party systems. Now, I mean, in some multi-party systems, what, what you have is actually minority government, which sounds like a bad thing. But, you know, I, I actually think it's, 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 a, it's a good thing because you can't pass legislation without a ma- majority. So actually, you know, it, it's a minority govern- ruling coalition within the legislature, but they actually have to build majorities on a, on a bill by bill basis, which, which in some ways creates the most flexible and responsive majoritarianism that you just build issue coalitions on a, on a somewhat ad hoc basis. Uh, but ultimately, if you can't find agreement, you can't find agreement. And then you have to think about different coalitions. I mean, coalitions that don't work should fall apart. And then there's new coalitions. I mean, the, the Salvini, you know, coalition fell apart in Italy. They had new, new elections. And now there's a more responsible centrist oriented government running things, not the, the sort of five star crazies. So, I mean, things, things change. Uh, democracy is fluid. Uh, there's no, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that multi-party democracy is a, would be a silver bullet. I mean, it's going to have problems. It's going to be hard to negotiate compromises and, you know, there's going to be disagreements. There's going to be holdouts. That's, that's, I mean, politics is about the things that we disagree over. If, if politics were about consensus, there would be no politics. So, question is you know it's it's both how how we govern personal multi-party system leads to a habit of more compromise within government but also how we experience democracy as as citizens and participants and what the two-party system is doing to all of us is it's driving us all crazy and it's driving us to uh really hate other Americans and to view other Americans as illegitimate and to not view uh, elections in which they win as legitimate. And, and that is fundamentally destroying our democracy. So, you know, in evaluating a- any party system, you have to, uh, you know, simultaneously understand how it affects government and how it affects citizens. And on both counts, you, a multi-party system gives you a more moderate, compromise-oriented uh, governing, and, and citizens who are, you know, more open-minded and less prone to sort of binary zero-sum thinking. To to kind of go beyond that, my my great fear is that there is a partisan realignment being taking place right now, and it involves a dimension between between democracy and authoritarianism effectively where people that believe in political freedom that believe in liberal democracy are are getting left with the only choice being the democrats and the republicans are becoming completely anti-system and being antithetical to the idea of democracy and in a two-party system like that the inevitable result will be the the destruction of of democratic governance yeah. it, it would fall apart if it goes that direction and and that gets to um the point we're talking about you know the, the strength of of partisanship is shaping ideology if the republican party basically uh transforms its ideology into being against fair elections a lot of voters will follow 
uh, because they are Republicans. And, and you're right. I mean, that, that is the death of, of democracy. I mean, you, you simply cannot have a democracy in which one of two major parties doesn't believe that, you know, there's such a thing as fair elections if they lose. I mean, the, that, that, is, that is how democracy dies. Even if the Democrats were able to continue to win and forestall the end, it would still be the death of democracy because you'd be stuck with a one-party system yeah. in that case. And yeah, well, like, that also. <laughs> yeah, well, you say in the book, one-party democracy is not really democracy. No, it's so. not. So, well, your final chapter describes a scenario where these reforms are put in place and things work perfectly. So let's say that we, we give you this scenario where everything works out perfectly in that final chapter. 20 years from now, we make all of the reforms that you recommend and they work out that way. What challenges remain that tear at the fabric of democracy and allow things to fall apart 20, 30, 50, 100 years later? Well, I, I, I don't know. But I mean, here's what I do know is that, I mean, if you look at the history of American democracy, it's been a long running series of challenges and reforms. It's been, you know, we, we've had moments of, of near democratic breakdown, certainly democratic backsliding. And we've had moments of reform in which American democracy has become more representative, you know, uh, uh, fairer. Uh, more inclusive. So, you know, history does not point in one direction. And, you know, democracy is, you know, a a series of, uh, really, it has to involve a series of trade-offs between competing values. I mean, the American experience has long been a trade-off between individual liberty and, you know, protection uh, for, for minority rights and, you know, equality and and majority rule. And those, those are values that are fundamentally in tension. I mean, in some ways, democracy and liberalism are, are, can fundamentally be in tension. And I think that, you know, uh, there are certainly ways to, you know, to balance them, but every, every institutional change elevates certain values among others. And at some point, you know, you, you have to solve the problem that is right in front of you. Uh, and the problem that is right in front of us right now is the binary hyperpartisanship that is driving uh, an escalating doom loop that is creating a fundamental legitimacy crisis for the basis of our democracy. And who knows what the problem will be in the future. Um, but all we can do is try to solve the problem that's in, in front of us and you know, hope that the next generation of reformers has the, the courage to solve the problems that we can't an- anticipate. Um, and, you know, and, and I know reform skeptics will always say that, oh, well, there are unintended consequences. Um, of course, there are unintended consequences, but there are also intended consequences. Uh, and, you know, there are unintended consequences of maintaining the status quo. Uh, it's, you know, that, that is a choice there to, you know, to, to keep things as they are. So, I mean, if, if you know that things are going downhill, things do not be appear to be uh, writing themselves, the fever is not breaking, you got to do something different. I, I think the reforms that I propose to move us to a more proportional system uh, would solve some of the most immediate problems. I'm not saying that they won't create new problems, but that, that'll be for, for future generations to 
to wrestle with. I mean, democracy is not something to be perfected. It's it's a way to uh, manage societal conflicts that preserves the the legitimacy of the system. Lee Drutman, it's uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, likewise. The Democracy Paradox Podcast is possible because of the support of many people and institutions. I want to thank Oxford University Press for a copy of Breaking the Two-Party Doom Loop. I want to thank Apes of the State for allowing me to use their music. You can find them on Spotify or their Bandcamp page. As always, I would not be able to produce these podcasts without the support of my wife, Julie, and the good behavior of my kids. The home of the Democracy Paradox podcast is at democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.